0: Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schram's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I wanna thank you all for joining us this evening. Uh, for those of you who may not know, I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. Uh, we are an educational center located at Ashland University. We conduct programs around the country and at the university for students, teachers, and citizens in the history and founding principles of our country. Uh, our mission, we really believe, is to help us more deeply understand and appreciate our history and the, the meaning of those principles. Uh, That we believe really profoundly at Ashbrook that education is not about indoctrination and not even really about just information, but about discovery. And we think the best way to discover is to discover the truth for yourself through conversation. So we're going to be having a conversation this evening on a very important topic that still resonates uh, today in our country. Uh, The debate, the, the discussion, the relationship between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And I'm joined for that conversation this evening by Professor Lucas Morel. Lucas is an old friend of the Ashbrook Center, uh, always delighted to have him with us. He is the John K. Boardman Jr. Professor of Politics at Washington and Lee University. He's also the head of the Department of Politics at Washington and Lee. Uh, Lucas at his university teaches courses in American politics and American political thought, Um, and uh, has contributed much to the life, uh, the vibrant intellectual and academic life there in Lexington, Virginia. He is also, of course, a great friend of the Ashbrook Center, as I mentioned, teaches for Ashbrook in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. He's taught courses uh, in American politics, American political thought, race and equality and also teaches for our Teaching American History Seminars, which we do for teachers around the country. And Lucas has traveled far and wide for Ashbrook to teach those seminars for teachers. Uh, He is, besides a terrific teacher and a great colleague, he is also a very established scholar, really one of the foremost experts in the United States in American political thought. In particular, the political thought Uh, of 19th century figures like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, He's published a number of books, but uh, just his most recent one that I want to encourage everybody to get uh, is Abraham Lincoln and the American founding. It is a wonderful treatment of Abraham Lincoln's understanding of the importance of the principles of the Declaration of Independence for this country and for Lincoln's own thinking about America and the meaning of the Civil War. And it's if you look at the back, boy, it's received some terrific praise some, from some very important figures. The historian James McPherson, for example, says, calls the book an important contribution to the literature on Abraham Lincoln. So let me encourage all of you to, I think you can go to Amazon and pick it up there or your favorite bookseller. I'm sure we'll have it. Again, that's Lincoln and the American founding. Lucas has also edited volumes on Ralph Ellison, the great American novelist and done a lot of work on the political thought of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. So he is a terrific expert, perfect person to join us this evening as we honor MLK Day with this webinar. Uh, Lucas, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us this evening.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Jeff.
0: Always love to chip in for the Ashbrook Center. To me, this seems like a very important holiday in this contemporary time um, because the meaning of America. And America, is it a land of freedom or a place of oppression? That conversation has come back up again in a very powerful way, as we know. Uh, it's not just confined to the academy. It's now swept across the country. It's in K-12 education. It's yeah. in politics. It's in people's homes. It's really a pressing issue. So it seems to me In recent years, the revival of this conversation, in some ways, the conversation itself can be traced back to these two figures, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, who at least seem to have very different views on America. And in fact, some people have actually traced their arguments on one side or other of this debate to those two figures. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we could just start by reminding us and reminding our listeners who Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were, a little bit about their biography.
1: All right, try to make this quick. Uh, we could spend the whole hour on either of those figures and still not exhaust the important contributions they made to precisely this uh, discussion um, that you have uh, hosted for us tonight, which is essentially the meaning of America and America American identity. Who are we as a people? Um, who are we in terms of understanding the meaning of things like equality and rights and government by consent, even the right of revolution? Uh, as controversial as that sounds, so we have to remember our, our nation was founded, <laughs> exercising that natural right of revolution, if we uh, read them and uh, trust them at uh, face value. Uh, so Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were both, uh, I would say they are the most iconic political activists of the latter half of the 20th century, uh and for a while we're on opposing almost diametrically opposing sides of um uh, the debate over progress in civil rights in america especially in the 50s and 60s so starting with martin luther king jr um he became first known as the leader of the montgomery boy uh, bus boycott the one that was sparked by rosa parks in december of, of 1955 when she refused to give up her seat Uh, as a black woman, refused to give up her seat to a white man. Uh, What was intended to be a one-day boycott, uh, when King was elected the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, it was so successful, they went for over 365 days. In other words, this was a boycott that lasted over a year and actually came to an end by virtue of a Supreme Court decision. Uh, but King, young as he was, was already fairly well known as a preacher and a gifted orator. And um, since high school, uh, along with Coretta uh, Scott King, who became his bride, um, were uh, both politically oriented and activists, uh, died in the wool, if you will. And so um, that that bus boycott launched King's career as uh, essentially the public face of what was known as the nonviolent movement for civil rights in the late 50s and 60s. Um, he, I would say almost single-handedly with the support of a number of rank and file folks, but his oratory, I think almost single-handedly rehabilitated uh, the, the use of mass demonstration for social and political change. Before the 40s and 50s, um, if you were to go out on the, in the streets and protest that was something that quote unquote the rabble uh, uh you know the 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 you know the the de, you know the disenfranchised and and you know the the hoi polloi, as they used to say um it wasn't something that prim and proper middle class americans did and king was a prim and proper middle class american and he made it respectable uh to uh, protest and, and and march and uh say things in a way that he hoped would resonate with uh, the majority white American population. And um, he really came to prominence, of course, with the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963. In August, I uh, gave that great uh, uh, speech known as the I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28th, 1963. Um, earlier that year, he published his most famous essay entitled Letter from a Birmingham City Jail. And so you either come to King through the speech his most famous or his most famous piece of writing, which was this essay. Um, I'm sure we can fill out more details later in terms of how he came to his tragic death in 1968. Um, he was shot to death at the Lorraine uh, Motel in, in Tennessee when he was working on what was known at the time as the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, so we can talk more about that uh, if you want. Uh, Malcolm X was born Malcolm Little, and he adopted the name X as his his last name Uh, when he became a member of an organization known as the Nation of Islam. Uh, Some people refer to them as uh, black Muslims, but um, we have to be careful because uh, it wasn't, it's not considered an orthodox sect of of Islam the way Sunni Islamists, uh, Sunni Muslims or Shiite uh, Muslims uh, are known to be. The Nation of Islam was founded by a guy named, um, or really came into prominence under a guy named Elijah Poole known as Elijah Muhammad. And while uh, Malcolm uh, Little was in prison, he was essentially converted to this religion that depended on not only the Quran, but a, a kind of um, a certainly unorthodox view of God and his creation, essentially viewed that uh, Black people were God's chosen people and has been biding his time while white people oppressed uh, the non-white people of the world and their judgment was coming due. And that was the message of Elijah Muhammad and a message that really became national and then international when Malcolm X became the spokesman and the the leading national representative of what was known as the nation, the nation of Islam. So um, Malcolm X's most prominent speeches, interestingly enough, came uh, around the time he was uh, uh making his way out of the nation of Islam because he discovered certain things uh some indiscretions of Elijah Muhammad with certain secretaries uh and he was disillusioned by that he was silenced by Elijah Muhammad in after uh John F Kennedy's assassination when Elijah Muhammad said look as much as we uh think of white people and this is to quote them as Devils they actually saw white people as devils um he didn't want any of his um, uh, spokesmen to speak against um, Kennedy uh, because he was so popular among Black Americans at that time uh, because he was um, the first president in the modern era to really push for civil rights. Well, Malcolm X obeyed that until he was badgered after a particular speech that he gave in early December. Badgered, badgered, badgered. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think of Kennedy's assassination? He finally said, it's a case of the chickens coming home to roost, essentially uh, alluding to the to what they understood to be America as as a purveyor of violence um, and of subversion across the globe. It just came back to bite America in the butt and it did so at the top. Uh, once uh, he, he called it chickens coming home to roost, silence for 90 days and then indefinitely, Malcolm X realized they were writing him out of the organization. And so in March of 64, he left, Formed the Muslim Mosque Incorporated and had also made a few trips, including one um, Hajj or pilgrimage to Mecca, which Orthodox Muslims are uh, 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 trying, you're supposed to try to do that, I I believe, at least once in your lifetime. And he saw for the first time, he says, uh, white haired, blue eyed Muslims who treated him as a brother, treated his him as an equal, treated him as a friend, and he stopped talking about white people as devils and started being more open to a society where um, there wasn't this truly hard and fast divide between blacks and whites. But um, I'll, I'll wait for more questions so that we can tease out what you might find interesting by what I've already said there.
0: That's fascinating, and I do want to encourage folks. As you mentioned, questions to join us in the conversation by asking questions through the Q and A function. As always, we'll try to get to as many of those as we can, both about MLK and Malcolm X, but also about uh, the situation today and their thoughts on the situation today. Because we do want to discuss that. But if you all, if you listeners, have questions about that, please <laughs> jump in. I I think I want to start, if I can, with my question. My first question on this is. That's that's a really interesting um, biography because they're obviously living and working in the same time period on the same kinds of issues. But your indication is they really had very different views of America. And if we could start maybe with Malcolm X, what is Malcolm X's view, at least before he starts to perhaps change in 64? What is his basic view of America?
1: Yeah, great. And I thank you for reminding the viewers about that year, 1964. He actually issues what he calls a Declaration of Independence. Gee, I wonder where he got that um, in March of 64. And that's his way of saying, hey, everything you've heard from me before, I got almost verbatim from uh, the man they referred to as the messenger, Elijah Muhammad, Uh, In fact, uh, Malcolm X actually started a newspaper for the Nation of Islam called Muhammad Speaks. Um, He prefaced almost all of his remarks while he was the lead spokesman for the Nation of Islam with, um, according to the honorable Elijah Muhammad, he would always defer and and submit to uh, the wisdom of of Elijah Muhammad. Um, And in fact, Muslim actually means, or Islam means he who submits. And Malcolm X was very deferential but he was a very powerful orator. Uh, I think one of the key things to think about in terms of contrasting King and X prior to 1964 is this question of means and ends. Let's start with ends. Um, King thought and, and fought for, uh, nonviolently, fought for what he called the beloved community. And so for King, he says, you don't get to love. uh, He used the Greek word agape to describe what love meant, what you do for someone not because you like them or they like you. You do it because it's what God intends for them. You wish the, the best and do the best for that person. King sought an integrated community, an integrated America, and ultimately an integrated world, an integrated global community. So King says you can't get to love through hate. You can't get to love through violence. And so for King, the means to the beloved community had to be consistent with that end. And those means were agape, love. And that meant you're gonna have to be ready to suffer and receive pain and harm and hatred towards you in your fight for righteousness. Um, King was a Baptist preacher from a line of, of, of preachers and it's no coincidence that um, he's influenced by the teachings of Jesus. Uh, the gospel, uh, the, the Prince of Peace as it were. And so um, King's emphasis on love rather than than violence and hate, or what he, many people viewed was violence and hate from the nation of Islam towards white people. Now I'm gonna offer something of a corrective there because I want us to understand the nation of Islam as they understood themselves and what they were actually preaching. Um, so with with Malcolm X, Malcolm X was definitely because Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam they were not they were definitely not interested in an integrated America. As I mentioned earlier, they believed that black people were the chosen people of God. Uh, It didn't look that way if you looked at America for hundred for several hundred years because whites were always in control socially, culturally, politically, you name it. Um, And the uh, the argument made by Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X swallowed this whole was that, well, God is biding his time until judgment was to come. And essentially white people, even though they look like they were in power, they all white people were walking around with targets on their back. Divine judgment is coming. And when that happens, black people better be nowhere near white people when that happens. And therefore they were known as black separatists or black nationalists. In other words, if you know uh, uh, that, violent uh, that that uh, the storm is coming a divine storm a divine judgment is coming yeah it's probably a good idea to stay away from uh, uh that judgment when uh, sooner rather than later and so they preached in the nation they preached a separate religion a version of islam a separate language arabic they they, they preached uh, uh, that they should have their own schools own businesses everything possible and precisely because they were a numerical minority in America, they should not participate in politics as a way of achieving justice and uh, reform. They thought the system was so corrupt for years. I mean, of course, centuries of slavery, followed by segregation, Jim Crow, peonage, you name it. um, They didn't want to have any um the cooperation or collaboration with their oppressors so voting was was not allowed while malcolm was the lead spokesman and you can see in, in the late nineteen in late 1963 he is really champing at the bit to try to get involved in that social and political activism but he's not allowed to no Na- nation of islam follower was allowed to at that time because you're simply cooperating you're aiding and abetting your oppressor so they want a separate state for Black people, and therefore the means to that separate state have to be uh, uh, for us, by us, FUBU. And what about this violence uh, business? Um, In the 1950s, Mike Wallace, fairly well-known national uh, broadcaster, uh, a, a white news reporter, produced a documentary called The Hate That Hate Produced. And it was a documentary on the Nation of Islam. And this sort of, I think for the first time, really brought to national attention Elijah Muhammad, the Nation of Islam, and Malcolm X. It's kind of early for Malcolm X, because I think it was produced in 1955. But, the, but white America learns about this black religion, this black um, a cohort of Americans who have rejected essentially everything about America as, as much as possible. Our religion, our language, our, our, our culture, et cetera. And um, where does the hate come from? Well, the idea that God is going to punish only white people, uh, that seems like, uh, uh, that's certainly not like or love. Uh, And the idea that they should not, definitely should not be nonviolent in their attempt to redress their uh, grievances. They can intelligently, as Malcolm X would say, they can defend themselves. They saw it as a means of self-defense whenever their rights were violated, whether individually or, for example, police brutality. And so um, Malcolm X, believing all this, thought it was uh, foolish of King, uh, as a Christian, to preach that one should turn the other cheek, especially Black people, should turn the other cheek. That seems to facilitate injustice. It doesn't seem to remedy it. And so they thought that was foolish
0: and maybe you've touched on this a little bit, but what effect did the ideological differences between Malcolm X and MLK have on everyday American life, particularly for, I might say, if I could add, particularly for their followers? What did it right. mean in the 60s to be a follower of, well, of Malcolm X or the Nation of Islam on your the way you actually lived? And what did it mean to be part of Dr. King's civil rights movement?
1: Yeah, I would say that uh, that's a great question, because both movements, if you will, uh, required um, a lot of their followers. We'll start with King. Uh, What did it require of King? King actually said that you could not participate in a formal protest or march unless you signed what was known as a commitment card that listed uh, hmm, 10 (laughs) particular strictures that you had to follow. You didn't have to be a Christian. You didn't even have to believe in God, but you did have to believe, as King understood it, that there was a moral force in the universe, a moral economy of the universe. He borrowed from uh, this abolitionist, uh, uh, I think he was a preacher back in uh, the antebellum days, Theodore Parker, this quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. King says, you gotta, the only thing that gives us hope is that God will second support our efforts for justice especially as a beleaguered minority in this country we need we, we need uh, the the universe on our side when the when everything else looks pretty bad uh and so uh for the followers he said you have to resist the violence of fist of tongue and here's the hardest one of heart it's one thing for me to control my tongue when somebody says something bad about me or especially about my mom right It's another thing inside for me not to want to hate and become bitter towards my oppressor. That's a tall order. That's a tall order. And so they actually even practice, if you watch this documentary called Eyes on the Prize, they show them training civil rights workers, white and black, Training for mass protests, and some of them had to pretend to be the oppressor, and things could get out of hand pretty quickly. The things they were saying and shoving, and, and all this sort of stuff. They, King, did not think you could be successful nonviolently if you hadn't already practiced almost on a daily basis this self control of spirit and of, of body to participate in a successful way. He could not let his movement become a riot or a mob. Now let's shift to Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. What was the tall order there? Uh, Malcolm X and, and, and believe me, the Nation of Islam, uh, I don't know that it became very popular under Elijah Muhammad, maybe a few hundred followers. When Malcolm X joined and started Establishing temples and temples and temples, you know, starting in Detroit and then moving his way, Philadelphia, New York, down the Eastern Seaboard. Um, His rhetoric, his oratory, uh, what he learned and picked up from the Quran and from uh, Elijah Muhammad was so powerful, uh, and and that the movement grew to, I I think, some sources say, forty to fifty thousand. But what was happening is, and their outreach really was towards the lowest of the low, the people who were down and out. Who had nothing going for them. And these people's lives were being radically transformed by their conversions to the nation of Islam. Um, they had a strict code with regards to dietary, um, you know, to, to their diets, um, and in a number of of people who, as we say, down and out, people in prison and in jail and just out on the streets, they cleaned up their act when they became. Uh, converts to the nation of Islam. And so um, in both cases, you have this very strong spiritual, religious call to uh, their followers in order to be respectively successful in um, uh, the, their, uh, the ends that they were trying to pursue. On the one hand, uh, uh, Black separatism, Black nationalism, um, and on the other hand, this thing that King called the
0: beloved community. It's very interesting to me because it, it sounds like to be a follower of either one required um, enormous discipline and commitment yes. Yes. from their followers. And in some ways, um, I, don't, I, I, I struggle for a, uh, the right term. It almost sounds like there's a kind of, at least in, you're saying, the kind of social conservatism even in his uh-huh. Black nationalism.
1: And by social conservatism, you mean in terms of uh, culture, you know, um, strictures
0: about moral behavior? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. In both cases, the way I would uh, the phrase I would use is moral effort. I I bet you no one has. That's a better phrase
0: than mine. Yeah.
1: No, no, uh, it's, uh, it's, for me, I I can't think of a more apt way to describe something that nobody talks about today, at least in those terms, even though we say when we're working at, uh, you know, habits of the heart, quoting Robert Bella, who got that from Alexis de Tocqueville, or or when we talk about character, what we're really talking about is this thing I'm calling moral effort, that the soul of a human being is capable of improving his morals, of understanding not just the difference between right and wrong, but thereupon, Acting on that understanding Um, and and doing right and doing it often, as Aristotle would teach us, uh, is something consistent with both Christianity and the nation of Islam as as religious uh, strictures go. So, yes, um, uh, they they required a lot spiritually of their followers. And again, if you couldn't do it uh, and there were people who wanted to support King but just said, hey, I can't take somebody calling me that word or somebody shoving me and I don't get to hit back what are other things I can do and so there were financial things you can do you could you know mimeograph flyers you know they found something for you to do but you were absolutely not allowed at least while they were paying attention you were not allowed to join an actual march or demonstration because you had to be obedient to because you knew there was going to be a provocation whether formally by you know the the the, the police or the sheriff or informally when uh, mobs of white people would would harangue. And so King knew that, Ralph Abernathy knew that, the so Southern Christian Leadership Conference knew that. So when they organized, um, they had these people, yeah, uh, pl- sign these pledge cards. And if you couldn't do that, then they said, fine, we, we, we're glad you're down with the movement, but we, we can't have you participate in this way. Um, you have to make this
0: attempt, this moral effort at trying to be good in the face of evil. It's interesting because I, I think I've heard Condoleezza Rice say her father said that he couldn't do that.
1: Wow. Well, I have spoken to uh, at least one person who was old enough to be around uh, at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and other uh, rallies that King organized, and this person had a revolver uh, in—I won't mention the sex—in his or her car. And so uh there were and you know that's a whole side of the civil rights movement that we're we're not as aware of uh that there was a more militant shall we say uh, gun-bearing element of the civil rights movement in circuit po- in certain pockets of America uh and this was nothing new in the, the uh, for the uh, for America I mean this goes back to antebellum time uh, uh Ida B Wells uh, among others thought that uh Uh, Any uh, proud uh, black family should have uh, firearms for self-defense at their homes. That was that was not a a, a negotiable issue
0: for them. Can you say a little bit um, about where King and X found the roots of their thought? You mentioned their religious beliefs, of course, very importantly. But did they see any antecedents in America or American history?
1: Sure. Uh, and I'm glad you asked that of both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, because we naturally gravitate towards King because he quotes Jefferson, quotes Lincoln. Good grief. It's not a coincidence that the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which was originally planned to be held at the Capitol because they're debating the civil rights bill in that summer. Uh, it's being filibustered, postponed, etc. It will eventually become the most important Civil Rights Act in American history in the following year of 64, followed by the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was originally planned to be staged at the Capitol because that's where laws are made. They decided to march from the Washington Monument to the steps of Abraham Lincoln, the Lincoln Memorial. And it was a televised uh, rally. A quarter million people were there. Very few of the elite press thought that it would be a peaceful assembly because they didn't think that many white and black people could be in the same area and not uh, turn into a riot. And of course that was proven uh, wrong. Uh, And so, um, okay, I've lost my train of thought here. Where was I going with King and- Well, King's antecedents, as you
0: say, were Lincoln and even Jefferson.
1: Oh, the antecedents. So yeah, I mean, great, footsteps of Lincoln. And quoting Jefferson, King talks about the Declaration of Independence and the constitution as a promissory note. In the eye of a dream speech. Um, King it speaks the language of equality and rights and consent, but interestingly enough, so in an odd way, or not odd way, but in an ironical way, does Malcolm X, more so after he leaves the nation of Islam, because remember, prior to leaving the nation of Islam, they aren't going to participate with America because America is just flat out categorical white oppressor. But what's, what's interesting here is that Malcolm X, almost besides himself, um, speaks the rhetoric of the American founding when, for example, in 1964, one of his most famous speeches, the ballot or the bullet, right? 64 is a big election year, presidential election year. He says, this year, it'll be liberty or it'll be death. He wishes he came up with that, right? That's straight out of of Patrick Henry: "Give me liberty, or give me uh, 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 death." So Malcolm X is is even he's more American than he wants to admit. Uh, When he uses the language of rights, he says, "Look, we you know will either receive our due, you know government will do its job by us and do what protect its rights, our rights." Gee, where did they learn that? Declaration of Independence. Either that will happen or it will be the bullet, right? The ballot or the bullet. But he wasn't simply preaching revolution, even though he thought as Americans, we shouldn't have a problem with that because how did we get our land? How did we get our government? How did we get control over our lives? It wasn't a bloodless, nonviolent revolution the way King is preaching. It was a violent one, right? And that's what blacks should threaten to do. But he also in 64 was wise enough to recognize Blacks are a numerical minority in the country, right? Maybe 12, 13%. A revolution, that's that's a a suicide uh, mission there. Uh, So what he thought is instead of pursuing civil rights, let's pursue human rights. Now, human rights, you can trace back not just to the Declaration of Rights in the United Nations. Where did they get that? They got it from the Declaration of Independence, which spoke of individual rights, natural rights, and rights endowed by your creator, not by your government. But what Malcolm X thought is, he says, I don't have faith in the conscience of America. America's conscience is bankrupt, he says. So let's take our case to the United Nations. Let's take our case to the world court. He had more trust in global public opinion because at least globally, blacks weren't the minority, at least as a non-white population. The white population is the minority globally, and so in a way, he was kind of preaching out of both sides of his mouth. Either give us what we are due as Americans, stop making us victims of Americanism, as he called it in 64, either let government do its job, or let's get justice through numerical strength. In other words, it was an appeal ultimately to might rather than right if America didn't live up to its professions. Uh, I hasten to add that King said famously uh, that his dream was a dream Deeply rooted in the American dream, it wasn't identical, but it was deeply rooted. And so, his uh, you know the, his appeal to Jefferson, his in the Birmingham City Jail letter, his appeal to Lincoln, his appeal to the Declaration and the Constitution; those are are, are the wells uh, from which sprung uh, King's um, uh, social and political activism. He he said the best way to wrap this up, at least in terms of this question, he says all we ask is that you be true to what you said on paper i think x asked the same thing but had less hope that the white american majority would respond
0: appropriately well that's interesting cuz one of my one of my thoughts as you were saying that is this question of hope um yes. in fact i think one of the volumes of martin luther king jr's writings is called a testament of hope
1: yes it's a big volume of his writings <laughs>
0: Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to learn a little more about the Ashbrook Center and how you can help us continue our work with teachers, students, and citizens.
2: I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashbrook. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org support.
0: Why did King have hope that America could make progress in living up to its, what he calls its founding creed? Why did he have that hope? And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about what Malcolm X thought of King's optimism. Oh, yeah. yeah. The second question is
1: easier to answer, but I'll hold off on it. the, the first one, why did King have hope? Um, I thought, I think at least through 63 and 64. And so I want you to ask me later, why did you say at least until 63 and 64? What happened in 65, 66, 67, 68? because I think King sings a different tune, if you will, but at least through uh, that pivotal year of 1963 and 64 that produced the Civil Rights Act and then the follow-up in 65 of the Voting Rights Act, King thought that progress in America could only come through allegiance and greater alignment with our founding ideals. In other words, at least in America, white people claimed to believe and at least for themselves practiced. And, you know, in in an increasing way over time, they didn't get it right immediately for all whites at the beginning either, right? We think about the right of women to vote, the right of the the property lists uh, to have civil rights and political rights, etc. But King said, at least in America, they put it in writing. They said on paper, all men, it didn't say white men, all men, right? Uh, Even the word slavery doesn't appear in the Constitution until Americans decide to get rid of it in the 13th Amendment. So he said, at least on paper, in their most important, uh, what Ralph Allison referred to as their sacred documents, whites at least claim to believe in the things even our, uh, you know, majority religion preaches, Christianity, uh, the golden rule, do unto others as you would uh, have others do unto you. That seems to have the principle of Human equality, the idea of the imago dei, right? The image of God, that that is not a racial or ethnic or nation of origin thing. That is a human thing. In other words, at least on paper and over time, institutionally and in laws and in social practice over time, they actually looked like they believed in this thing called human equality. What we all share as human beings, the rights of equal humanity. So King said, as long as that's in their hymnal I'm going to sing from it. Okay. All we ask is that you be true to what you said on paper. If we were, if King was living under the Confederate States of America, under that Constitution, I don't think King would have as much hope, except for the fact that his faith teaches him that God is with him and that even suffering can be redemptive. And that's what motivated him. Uh, You can't understand the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s without listening to or reading. The songs that were gospel songs Christian songs of the black church so a lot of those songs were sung in white churches uh but you can't understand the civil rights movement and what gave them hope w- w- uh, unless you take a look at and, and hear uh, those songs i'm gonna I'm going show you something here this is a button um that was worn by a number of the marchers uh, at uh, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And you'll notice that color is important. It is a white hand clasping a black hand. Uh, and so the idea here is that King believed that both, uh, you know, as far back in the Bible as Genesis and through the Gospels and the letters of Paul uh, and others in the New Testament, that what is preached according to the majority religion of America, is the things that were uh, touted in the Declaration of Independence about equality and about each individual. The Declaration speaks of rights. Today, we speak of dignity. Uh, This idea, though, that every human being bears the image of God, um, those are the things that King found in America's heritage, Uh, in America's religion, in America's culture, and thankfully, in America's politics. When that became codified, became part of our statutes and our founding documents, again, the Declaration and the Constitution and Bill of Rights, King said, this is the most sure ground. These are the levers of freedom uh, for us. Whites can't live with themselves for long by saying one thing and practicing another. Now, your second question, which was the... So is that
0: why... For example, when you see pictures of civil rights marches and Martin Luther King Jr. and others, you it seems like you always see American flags. Yes,
1: yes. Um, that was their way. And again, I think the cynic among our our listeners, and, and there needs to be, there's something patriotic about at least a little cynic, a cynicism because of the gap between what we have said and written and how we've acted. Uh, but the cynic might say, well, yeah, 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 uh, but... Uh, there's also an element of strategy here. There's also an element of rhetoric. And in other words, the art of persuasion, at least part of it, is appealing to what it is your audience already holds to be true. King didn't have to persuade white people that all men are created equal. They have been trying to live that out for, for centuries. He didn't have to try to persuade them about government by consent. He didn't have to try to persuade them about those signature principles and ideals of uh the American Constitution and Declaration. And so he took those and appealed to those. He appealed to American heroes like Jefferson and Lincoln. He appealed to American, you know, documents that were written by white men, the Declaration. But but the the, the genius was that Lincoln that that King was making an argument that whites already profess to believe in and therefore flying a flag was consistent with the things that not only they held to be true, but most, in, uh, but uh, quite importantly, not most importantly, but quite importantly, their their majority
0: white audience held to be true. What was Malcolm X's view of King's optimism?
1: Yeah, King's optimism. <laughs> uh, prior to meeting King, and in fact, there was some there has there was some correspondence, uh, uh, written correspondence between King and X, but they only met one time, and it was after the March on Washington in March of '64 when they were both. Uh, at the Senate uh, uh, there to hear what was going on in terms of the debate over the civil rights bill, which hadn't become an, uh, a, a law yet. Uh, but prior to the civil rights uh, movement, uh, their, their march on Washington on August 28, 1963, when X heard of that march, he called it the farce on Washington. And you, know, you don't know X if you don't know that he loves to play with words. Uh, and so he called it the farce on Washington because for example, John Lewis's speech John Lewis also spoke at the March on Washington. It was vetted. In other words, it was screened ahead of time by the Kennedy administration to make sure it wasn't too militant in its appeal. They knew with King they could trust King because he was the champion of nonviolence. And in fact, King was critical of the Nation of Islam, both in the letter from Birmingham City Jail and the I Have a Dream speech. He painted them as extremists, uh, which, by the way, is not uh, ultimately a, a... uh, 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 a description that King minded for himself as long as you're an extremist for justice. Uh, you know that argument if you've read the letter from Birmingham City Jail. But Keck, uh, King thought that, excuse me, Malcolm X thought that King was essentially a token uh, uh, beneficiary of the white power establishment, that King, um, you know, the, the March on Washington is is bought out by whites, funded by whites, um, uh, King's got the favor of of the white power establishment, but what about the black masses? How come their lives aren't improving? And so um, he thought it was foolish of King to make these appeals. Why would why would they start believing in the Declaration of Independence all these many years after it was written? Uh, that's way too long. We should have had our rights, you know, a long time ago. And King is a fool. And if he's not a fool, he's worse. He's what was known at the time as an Uncle Tom. Someone who simply parrots what white people want black people to hear. You get King, you get Ralph Abernathy, you throw a few uh peace-minded black leaders, so-called, out in front of black masses to keep control of the black masses, and you just pay those guys off. And so that was what X said of King prior to leaving the Nation of Islam. After he left the nation of Islam, after he declared independence from Elijah Muhammad and the nation, um Malcolm X famously said that he was interested in practical results and and the famously the the famous remark was by any means necessary. And that meant anybody working for change, social change, political change, Malcolm X had yet to develop fully a political philosophy to inform his political practice. So at that time he was only interested in in results. And so if King was making a head head uh, headway uh, uh, for civil rights, Malcolm then said um, he would support it. He would support anybody who was changing what he understood to be an oppressive white establishment
0: politically. So it sounds like um, and you mentioned that you alluded to this earlier, that their positions after 1963 did begin to change a little bit. Yes. And in fact, um, we've got a couple of questions here asking about um, what you think about how uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X's views, did they converge at all toward the ends of their lives? Mm -hmm. And in particular, another question connected to that is the popular media's focus every year on this holiday on the I Have a Dream speech. But not King's later speeches, right? Post 1964. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about whether or not King and X changed their views or came closer together on their views?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think they did come. Uh, I don't know that they mapped on entirely because ultimately, I mean, for example, I mean, the, the clearest difference between them after 60, or 64 and after, of uh, course, Malcolm X is shot to death uh, in February of 65. King in April of 68. Um, so we don't really hear or, or read uh, again the, the the fleshed out version of what Malcolm X was was going to propose in terms of means towards ends. But the fact of their religious difference, the difference between Christianity on the one part and Islam on the other, that would remain a fundamental divide between them. Now, what are the political implications of that? I'm not a student of Islam, so I can't speak to um, that um but it's clear that King, that Malcolm X never became a devotee of of nonviolence and King never rejected nonviolence he always argued he was always a proponent of nonviolence however Malcolm X his speeches especially in late 63 and throughout uh, 64 had an influence on younger black members of the civil rights movement especially folks like uh, Stokely Carmichael who um uh, either uh, outvoted or ousted John Lewis as the head of the Southern uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC. So Stokely Carmichael, you know, famously during a march with King in his presence, got the marchers to, and it was an integrated march, got the marchers to change their tune from saying, we shall overcome to, uh, what do we want? <laughs> black power. When do we want it now? And King's like, wait a second, we can't be, what do you mean black power? And so uh, the militancy of these younger black political activists who said, "Look, this isn't coming fast enough for us. We're we're not into the. We can't get into. We're not down with this. Turn the other cheek business." They are what I call the god the godchildren of Malcolm X. They were preaching a form of black nationalism, what they called black power, not based on Malcolm X's uh, now orthodox Sunni Islam uh, religion but simply on the basis of their having their rights as black people denied to them on the basis of their race in a country that claims uh, otherwise, that the rights belong to you as a human being. And so the impatience of the youth, of the, of the younger uh, civil rights uh, uh, marchers and movement, that got to King and King started, and, and, and in fact, he had to you know write about black power and preach about what the the appropriate understanding of black power should be. So it's not just, as he called it, just slogans without any meaningful substance to uh, connecting means and ends. Um, And so you'll see in the later speeches of King, a greater emphasis um, on the movement still being nonviolent, but blacks thinking of themselves as black people, not simply as uh, black Americans. He never went to the extremes of some who said that being an African American which became a more popular term in the late 60s he he never went to the extremes of, of saying that their africanness superseded their americanness king was very explicit about this um and 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 you you'll see uh, the obamas are a great example i believe it's michelle obama who commented that when 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 she and um, Barack Obama visited the na- the the continent, not the nation, the continent of Africa, they didn't realize how American they were, even though right they were amidst a right. people. She's a, a, a descendant of of slaves that were brought over, um, even though uh, uh, they looked like they were going uh, back to their ancestral uh, lands. Uh, the the culture, the religion, the language—they couldn't be more different than than the than the, the the people groups they met on the continent of Africa, and so the 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 civil rights movement, as King led it, remained nonviolent, but he, star- he he was compelled to address issues of black power. What did that mean economically? What did that mean politically? And so he started speaking the language of Stokely Carmichael of uh, Charles uh, Hamilton, and they they jointly wrote, Hamilton and and Stoker Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture, wrote this book called Black Power, right? Uh, And uh, in that book, they argued that Blacks really needed to understand themselves as Black people and define themselves as, as Black people, because up till now, those definitions, what's important, what's valued in life, has been determined by the majority white society. And so they began to suspect um, uh, something uh, uh, underneath the the verbiage and the rhetoric of what they would call white America. And so you get in uh, anyway. So um, you see that seeping into King. I'm gonna, I want to show you another book here. It's called Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? It's a book King wrote when he was living in a in a, a down and out uh, suburb of Chicago. What was what we used to refer to as the ghetto. Um, he wrote this uh, in a poor neighborhood, and King wrote it in a, a out of great discouragement. Right, this is a year or two after the Voting Rights Act has been passed, and he still didn't see the results coming fast enough after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And King started emphasizing character less, getting education less. He didn't write it out, but he started emphasizing uh, the the how insuperable, not impossible, but how insuperable it was to overcome one's race uh, uh, in this country because of the legacy of slavery, the legacy of segregation that was driven by color bigotry. And this, he came up with this uh, this idea of color shock. I think it's in chapter four of that book, and he talks. I mean, he—it's not the King of the I Have a Dream speech. There is not a lot of hope in that book. It, i mean, notice the subtitle: Chaos or Community. King hopes for community. He still thinks, still believes in nonviolence. And interestingly enough, one would think he still believes in Christianity, but he talks about America needing a revolution in values. And I'm thinking, hmm. What values besides his Christian values, what values besides America's political values that he had been preaching uh, at least up until 63, what is he referring to? And he was very vague and nebulous about that. But he thought we needed a revolution in values, and and he uh, he thought that we needed massive spending. If we can spend a ton of money on war, Vietnam, we can spend a ton ton of money at home, especially for Blacks. And poor whites. He called for a guaranteed national income and what he called a bill of rights for the disadvantaged. He thought that with these massive spending programs, a transformation of the psyche, a fancy word, right? It's Greek for soul. He thought a transformation of the psyche of black people in America would occur. It was more important than the check, more important than the money. It's the support that that money gave you to get an education, to get job skills, to take advantage of the opportunities that were in America, coupled with, of course, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. King thought it would require a tremendous amount of federal intervention for black human beings on American soil to truly make good on the American dream. And so... He, he really came to invest in an odd way, in, in way more in the value, not the value, but what it, what it meant to be black in America as being an obstacle, not black in terms of your own uh, kind of outlook on life, but the fact that color bigotry faced you everywhere you went in spite of the 64 and 65 Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act. King said um, that this idea of somebodiness needed to be. Um, supported by the greater white society, you think, well, how is that going to happen? And uh, King argued in that book that whites need to be, and his key word, I wonder where Barack Obama got it from, this idea of empathy. Unless you had white empathy backed by massive federal dollars towards Black Americans and poor whites, then you would not get uh, you you could not honestly say that blacks were enjoying the prosperity that white America promised uh, allegedly to everyone. So it's a, it's a strange uh, pivot from King moving away from appeals to character, appeals to what I'm calling moral effort. Uh, in fact, appeals to the very things that I believe made him a success, uh, a product of a sound, you know, uh, um, uh, family, you know, a mom and a dad, you know, what we all want. Uh, and expect for ourselves and our children um a sound moral fo- foundation. You know, King says famously that a riot is at bottom the language of the unheard. And so he was he didn't want to give, he didn't want to give short shrift to the the riots that were taking place in uh, these you know neglected communities of our country. he 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 wanted to point at the source of those. And he said the source of those, was uh, the the legacy effects of slavery and segregation. And so he was one that was definitely not going to, as we say today, blame the victim. He blamed society for that, white society for that. And therefore, white society
0: needed to change in order for black society to change. I see. So how about on the Malcolm X side? Because you you alluded to earlier, something was interesting to me, which is he began to... He had for so long defined himself by blackness or Africanness yes. Um, yes. In, in in his particular religion, teaching that. Did he move away from that idea that my defining character characteristic is blackness? Yes. Two things. Number
1: one, when he became an orthodox member of the Islamic faith, a Sunni Islam, uh, a Sunni Muslim, and when he saw so many Muslims who were people of color, as we say today, and white people, when he saw an integrated religion that, as he understood it, treated everyone the same, he had to drop the emphasis on race as a fundamental identity of somebody's, uh, as part of your fundamental identity. Now, if you're a Black person in America, however, as long as its institutions And as long as its majority population doesn't look like you, blackness still had to be a part of the appeal. And so, for example, Ballot or the Bullet, this April 1964 speech that he gives, he said there that in the fall, black people needed to vote as a block because even though they're a numerical minority, if they vote as a block, they could tip an election locally, state level, national level. He says, for too long, right for the longest time we were republicans and then around fdr he doesn't go into it in this detail but around fdr the new deal etc we become we 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 shift towards the democratic party okay and but he says now the democratic party is taking us for granted so we shouldn't vote as a block for every Democrat that's on the ballot, nor should we for every Republican. So he says that intelligent voting has to happen among black people because their deprivations are on the basis of race. So he's, he, he he wants to hold on to both. His religion tells him race doesn't matter. Islam is an integrated religion. It's not a, it's not a religion just for uh, uh, the darker nations as Malcolm X referred to it. It also includes whites. So he couldn't say that race was fundamentally, you know, uh, 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 any more a theological precept. However, given the country you live in, and if that country's America, he said, hmm, in America, we're victims of Americanism. He, he could not and refused to call himself an American until, as he said, uh, government did its job. So he,
0: he holds on to both, but he no longer at bottom believed that white people were devils. So this uh, argument obviously continued on even after Malcolm X's death in 65 and then um, MLK's death in 68, continued as a strain of debate. We've seen it come back very powerfully, probably since 2020 um, back Mm -hmm. in and things even earlier than that, things like the 1619 Project. What would you say is the legacy today of this debate between Martin Luther King Jr and Malcolm X.
1: Well, it really does the, the legacy is and in fact it's an invitation to what you mentioned earlier but the purpose of the Ashbrook Center is um it is uh, the, the legacy is uh, in a, in a sense a question. And that question is what is the real America? Uh what is the true America? What is our identity as a country and as a people? Uh to what extent um Can we take seriously the claims of the Declaration of Independence, which at its face, even folks like Nicole Hannah-Jones, the curator of the 1619 Project for the New York Times Magazine, and now the book uh, that was published last year, um, even she says that the principles uh, are are great if white people actually acted according to them. And her argument is it was only uh, almost entirely The the, the result of black efforts to secure their rights and the rights of other uh, racial minorities that this country ever came close to living up to their professions. She really pays short shrift to the white majority that had to pass, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Brown v. Board of Education decision and, you know, uniformly white uh, Supreme Court. Um, and so we still we have this is a debate that is kind of been re-energized and reinvigorated precisely because of the claims that have been made throughout our history, that we say one thing but do another. In other words, um, what we're staring at is the human condition, you know, frail, fallible, uh, sinful people who are trying to, as I said earlier, m- make the moral effort to do right by one another, uh, but for a, a host of reasons. <laughs> Uh, uh, fall short. And so uh, at the end of the day, you know, um, we have to ask ourselves, are our principles and are our institutions um, and are we each other capable of living up to our, our noblest professions? And if the
0: answer to that is no, I'm I'm not sure what the alternative would be. And the suggestion you had is even to the end of his life, despite his increasing discouragement in some respects, King held on to the hope that the answer to that question is yes. The answer
1: to that question, yeah. I mean, he wouldn't write, he wouldn't speak, he wouldn't campaign unless he thought uh, that Americans, especially white Americans could do right by their ideals. uh, Like I said, he died uh, beginning to lead a movement called the Poor People's Campaign. He shifted his emphasis from civil rights to what he would consider uh, economic rights. And, And he thought all would be the best beneficiaries of that, not just black people. So he was still, at the end, appealing to America to be its uh, uh, better self, its best self.
0: Fascinating. Well, Lucas, thank you. The time has flown by. Thank you so much I know, uh, for joining us this evening. Uh, man, it's so important to remember these two important figures in history and to understand the debate between them. As you say, it's a debate that we yes. still live with today in this country. Thank you for Definitely. taking the time for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. Uh, for this conversation we'll let you know that a link to, uh, to this uh, a link of the recording of this will be sent to you so you can share this you can watch it again you can share it with your friends your family your children your grandchildren fellow teachers uh, all around the country we hope we can get this in the hands of lots of folks so they can be a part of this conversation we really do believe that through these conversations we can think deeply as Professor Morell said, about what it means to be an American. And in that thinking, renew our own understanding, renew our hearts and minds uh, in our understanding of our country. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us for this conversation. And as always, uh, and perhaps especially on this MLK Day, I always invite you to stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.